He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 17, 2021. I have a superstar guest, a civil rights trailblazer, his father too. His dad was Senator Regis Groff. His son, Peter Groff, ended up serving in the state house, the state senate, president of the Colorado State Senate, first African-American man, To have that distinction, he returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He's been a guest before. Back in the days I did radio on a station that is now putting out so much disinformation, both of my prior stations, that it's painful. I listened to Dr. Vivek Murthy. He is smart as hell. The United States Surgeon General. He said we need to confront this misinformation, but to do it in a nice way. And it occurs to me that back in the day when I was occupying my spot on the radio, especially during the Trump era, that that was my job there, correcting the misinformation. And I was a trusted source by some, but now you don't hear anybody who takes a view opposite of Donald Trump, the guy who could end this pandemic if he would just say, Joe Biden and I don't agree about much, but you need to get the vaccine. Instead, he supports the people who are anti-vax. And that's why we can't get out of this pandemic. And it's a darn shame, and I'm not going to get mad because Dr. Murthy said that's just the way you turn those people off. But I have to really fight the urge to get angry when I talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and their Nazi metaphors as the government tries to end this pandemic. Vaccines are where it's at. I got vaccinated. Everybody in my house is vaccinated now. And I understand it's a struggle. And some people turn to trusted sources and some people turn to the radio, and this is what they're hearing on Denver Trump Radio. They're hearing Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that's just misinformation. I'm going to have a segment after Peter Groff where I break down what I've been hearing during my brief forays listening to the places I used to work. And it's distressing, not just because These hosts who have a lot of power with their microphones, it's not just the host. These are Republican statewide officials. When you talk about the guy with the pompadour and Lauren Boebert and Christy Burton Brown, head of the Colorado Republican Party, come on now. These are masters of misinformation, and it's coming through our public airwaves and out of the mouths of statewide officials for the Republican Party, which 
is now dominated by Donald Trump. And this leads to low vaccinations in states where Republicans and Trumpism are ascendant, not so in Colorado, but in our neighbors, and we're all connected. This is hurting us. And let me just tell you, Marjorie Taylor Greene coming to Colorado, again, I'm going to try to be nice, but I don't like it. I went to college in Colorado Springs. She's coming August 5th as the guest of the El Paso County Republicans. And some people love her, like this guy with the pompadour. It's 328, Randy Corcoran. What a great interview. Uh, And I'm not talking about my interview skills. Just listening to Marjorie Taylor Greene. That is an America First Republican in action. Those are the people I can get excited about. Every time I hear America Firster, I think about Charles Lindbergh and that movement before World War II, where most of us hated the Nazis, but not Lindbergh, not Lucky Lindy. Lindy wanted to throw in with Hitler, and a lot of people backed him, not the majority, especially after Pearl Harbor. He had to abandon that. But we remember America first. It's a nativist movement that leads to problems. Listen to Peter Groff. And then the guy who has a lot of problems, the guy who runs that problematic outlet of Denver Trump Radio, Peter Boyles, guy who used to hate all politicians, guy who called out the big lie until he capitulated to Randy Corcoran. Listen to that episode, Boyles' Capitulation. But now who does he love? Lauren Boebert? You don't have to take my word for it. He confesses to it. Watching the key fundraiser for Republican women shunning uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I love Lauren Boebert. There's a reason. After Peter Groff's excellent interview, you will hear me play the sound of the misinformation spewing forth from Denver Trump radio. And I'm going to try to be nice about it. And maybe I could have been nicer right there. See how I do after the Groff interview in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey, thanks for listening. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello. Peter, it's Craig. Are you ready to do some podcasting? Sure. I can't tell you what a thrill it is to welcome you back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's been a while, and you must have so many opinions that the public needs to know about. I follow you on social media. Let me just give you a bit of an intro. Former House rep, former state senator, president of the Colorado State Senate, Guy took the time to go to DU Law School, graduated in 1992. He worked for a guy named Barack Obama. And I can't think of anybody better to talk to than uh, this proud husband and father of two. How the heck are you, Peter Gropp? Craig, I am great, particularly since I was just home this week. That always makes me happy. Tell everybody, thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. Tell everybody about your busy schedule and how you are spending your time these days. Well, currently I'm doing um, a lot of consulting primarily on uh, education stuff, particularly 
um, charter school efforts and alternative efforts. So um, charter are doing consulting on um, education across the country, doing some political consulting. Um, just launched a lecture series around the issues of leadership and decision-making and policy creation and hope to start that in the fall um, at a couple of schools, still having some conversations about that. But those are the things that are that are keeping me busy. Well, I know a leader that you know pretty well. His name was Regis Kropp. I had immense respect for him. Saw him all the time at Coors Field, and he was friendly and when he disagreed with me, he wasn't shy about giving me a piece of his mind. I miss your dad. I bet you really do. I do. I miss him every day, and particularly was you know at the All Star um, festivities on Monday uh, with the Home Run Derby and Tuesday, and it brought back uh, 1998 um, when he and I went, and we actually just set a couple of sections over from where my dad's seats were. Um, but that's where I kind of got the love for baseball. And he actually passed it on to my son. He was the one who taught him how to throw and, and catch. And so um, I do miss him, particularly during baseball season. Your dad was quite a man, a leader in Denver. Brag on him. Tell people a thumbnail version of your father's life story. Sure. Um, grew up in a very small town in western Illinois, Monmouth, Illinois. Um, and usually people ask, well, where is that? And I said, well, obviously, you know where Chicago is. Do you know where Peoria is? And half the people say, yeah, kind of. Then you can kind of narrow it down from there. Do you know where Galesburg is? And only a handful of people know where it is. Ironically, Bob Bacon, who I served with both in the House and Senate, was from Monmouth or from Galesburg around the same time. I think he might have been a year or two younger than my dad. So they were in that area together. Um, but Went from Monmouth to uh, the Air Force and served in the Air Force for a couple of years and then came out and um, started his career in public service, was a social worker in Chicago, which is where I was born, actually. Um, but during the service, the served at Lowry Air Force Base, loved Denver. Um, so it was between Denver and San Diego, where he also served and decided on Denver. And uh, he and my mom moved there, and then he taught for 30 years in DPS, uh, taught at uh, Denver East High School for the bulk of that time, um, went on to do some administrative stuff, ran for the state legislature, um, and ended up losing the House seat, which I actually um, held. But during that same election, George Brown, who was the first African-American lieutenant governor, in the country by a handful of hours over Marvin Dimley in California, um, held the Senate seat, but he became lieutenant governor, um, served under Dick Lem. And my dad said, well, let me give it one more shot and went to the vacancy committee and they appointed him to the Senate. He served there for 20 years um, and was the first African-American um, minority leader. Um, he also, he would brag about um, how the entire caucus at the time, the Democratic caucus, could literally fit in his office because there was only about eight of them. Um, but loved his time in the legislature uh, was that generation coming out of the civil rights movement when he served from 74 to 94 uh, and really was kind of that voice, um, kind of that Joshua generation um, and served to continue to try and push civil rights and clearly made it. Um, easy for me to to run a handful of years later. 
what a life your father led. And now there's big, brand new Denver Public School Building, 18250 East 51st Avenue, with the name Regis Grop Campus. That's got to make you proud. That was just an incredible time when uh, Superintendent Collins said, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. Would you be okay with it? And I was just speechless when they called and then to go out there for the grand opening. Two high schools there on the Regis Groff campus and have had the chance to go back and then talk to students about it. And you walk up and you see his name and then you walk into um, either one of the, the buildings and there's a huge picture of him. It's It's incredible. I know you love sports. I do, too. I got that from my old man. Is that true for you as well? Absolutely. Uh, so just certainly baseball. He was a big baseball guy. So that's um, where I got my love of it. That's where I, I keep score. I will sit and watch. I watch the Rockies. I've only missed one game actually so far of their season, but periodically I'll pull out a, a scorebook that I have in the desk and then keep score. He taught me how to do that. Um, and then just every sport, so just basketball, football, taught me how to play golf, and I play golf to, to this day. So that's where that love of sports came from. And I see you comment on tennis as well occasionally. I do. Um, usually when Americans are doing well. Now, if they're not doing well, I will not usually watch. I did watch the women's Wimbledon final, um, but I literally anything that – there is a score kept and a winner is named. I will watch it. And, you know, when I grew up, my dad had a bet on it. And guess what? Now that's legal. So I think he was ahead of his time. I, I certainly my dad was. He lost a, a lot of money. So it was a good thing. It probably wasn't legal. <laughs> we couldn't find I know, too I many wonder. more places to do it. I, can you see our two dads with their iPhone trying to get in on FanDuel, DraftKings, compare lines? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I, I've had Alex Garnett on the show, and I think Colorado's done a wonderful job with legalized sports wagering. It's really competitive, user friendly. Are, are you prohibited from participating? I wouldn't imagine so. Actually, Virginia just started. We live in Virginia. Um, Virginia just started in January allowing it. So my first bet was on the Super Bowl. Um, but they've done a very good job of, to your point, making it easy. And I suspect they uh, copied what Colorado has done. Uh, but it's very easy to kind of do on your phone. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of warnings about, hey, do you have a problem? I guess if you do too much of it. But um, it's been fun for the the times that I've done it. I'm not as big a gambler as my dad was. Um, every time I lose, I'm like, I just threw away X amount of money. So, it, you know, then I stopped for a couple months. But uh, that was certainly a big thing for him. When he retired from uh, both Denver Public Schools and the legislature, he lived half the year in Las Vegas. So he spent really? the winters and yeah, the winters in Las Vegas and came back. Um, we'd go down through Arizona, uh, watch the Rocky Spring training, and then come up with them. So um, he spent a, a lot of time in Las Vegas. Your dad had a system for everything. I just loved interacting with him. And I can remember when he ripped me for not being sufficiently backing of Barack Obama. And looking back, 
You know, he had a point. I look back to those days, and you may as well. He was your boss, and this leading to a question about him. I, I think that he was a bit of an unknown coming out of Illinois. You guys probably like that. And, uh, and, and yet people worried that he might be a radical because of Jeremiah Wright and because, you know, there was a lot of argument that way. But time has proved that Barack Obama is a good family man. He's not a radical. He's a solid American. He hasn't done anything crazy during his eight years or afterwards. So isn't that argument over? I think it is. And and I think as, as history will continue to look back on those eight years, you'll continue to see historians say he was the right guy for the right time and did an immense amount to move the country forward. I, you know, recently, I guess C-SPAN released their review of the presidency had moved into the top 10 and that was kind of a big deal, but he was a moderate guy. He was always a moderate guy. And, you know, for um, an African-American, as he used to say, an African-American with a funny name, the idea was that he was just going to be this radical was really never him at all. Um, and certainly the folks around him, uh, we're not like that either. And I, again, I think history is going to shine a very pleasant light on, on his service. Except I worry that some people perpetuating their Obama hatred spawned the likes of Donald Trump to our, uh, you know, eternal shame. And really, it's frightening to the country. Do you think the two are related? Do you think... Trump is a delayed reaction to Barack Obama and maybe even the realization that, hey, he did pretty great, but we don't want people of color taking over. Well, I think there's probably some of that, but, you you know, you'll find a lot of um, kind of moderate areas in the middle of the country that voted for Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And with what Donald Trump um, said he was going to do um, which, of course, he did really nothing. Um, but I think what he offered and how he said it was unique to people. Um, what Barack Obama said and how he said it was unique to people, to both outsiders, to folks who were not of Washington, if you will. Um, and, and so that from that standpoint, um, you can have folks who, who voted for both. But yes, there was certainly, there's no question that there was an undercurrent of racism and hatred and fear of people of color taking over, which we still are dealing with, um, certainly today, that, that Donald Trump spawned. So, yeah, there, I think it was there were two sides to that coin, absolutely. Right. And the way Kamala Harris gets attacked, it's, to me, misogyny and, again, not giving a, a black person a fair chance the animus that I hear conservatives voice about her is just out of proportion to her life story or anything she's done since she's been VP. It's totally out of step with who she is. And I, I know her a little bit. She and I were on the platform together, platform committee together in 2008. Um, so I got to know her then and then followed her career. Again, another moderate, even in California. I know a lot of folks who live in California used to kind of bicker and complain and say, oh, she's not liberal enough for for us. But it's certainly the the 
the complaints that you're hearing, the attacks that you're seeing are certainly because she's a woman, certainly because she's African-American and Asian. Uh, and again, it goes back to that that strain of the Republican Party and of the right who are fearful that those people are, are taking over. Uh, and, and so you, she's going to continue to see that. So I, I suspect it's not a surprise to her or, or the president. But I think she's done a good job of um, keeping her eye on what the president has given her. And I think given her really some unique opportunities, I saw today um, that she met with the chancellor of Germany. How many vice presidents greet um, a leader from another country? It was not Joe Biden who was out there. It was um, the vice president. I think he's put her in a very unique position um, to do whatever she might do after this. But it, it also shows that, yes, she can do the job. The, the big piece, um, and you mentioned the misogyny piece, and we watched Hillary Clinton, who, whatever you might think of her, was clearly qualified to be president, lose to somebody who was clearly qualified not to be president with all the other stuff around it and even with some of the baggage of the Clintons. Um, but a lot of that was anti-woman. Um, and, you know, again, we see that this country um, is probably more uh, misogynist than it is racist because we actually elected an African-American named Barack Obama to the presidency but Hillary Clinton, the most qualified person in this country's history as a nominee, was not elected. And you went to law school like me, and when you study how any uh, statute, the kind you drafted in the House and the Senate, that uh, touches on racial issues, it has the highest constitutional scrutiny. Gender a little lower than that. And you think, hmm, and... At the same time, I would say that in terms of people not voting for Hillary or maybe being harsh against Kamala, I think that that comes from other women, much more so than you see other black people going against black people. Or You know what I'm saying? It's just a different, interesting deal, and we're hearing it in the this gender has to do this, this gender has to do that. But... Uh, Kamala Harris has so many responsibilities, and one of them led to the All-Star Game in Denver. And I, I don't know how you rank issues, but voting rights, is that number one? Is that the same thing as civil rights, civil rights, voting rights? This is something we thought our father's generation had won, but it's back again. That's a very interesting question. I'm not sure how I would rank it. I mean, certainly— of the issues that this country is facing right now, the voting rights piece of the civil rights effort is absolutely one or two, however you want to deal with that, simply because of the ability of voters to put people in office. Um, so the right people, from our perspective on the left-hand side of the ledger, are the folks that we want in there. But if if it's if we make it harder for folks to vote, certainly the big tent that we have, the harder it is, the fewer people are going to vote. And, and I've been saying that quite a bit, either on social media or other pieces that I've done, is that Republicans don't want people to vote. The fewer, the fewer voters, the better they're going to do. 
Uh, and so this is obviously a calculated plan, but I, I think it is, it goes straight to the heart of our democracy. Um, so if it's not the, the first issue, it is um, certainly number two um, with the bullet. So it's the, the biggest thing uh, that I think the country has to deal with, but I'm just not sure Congress is going to be able to get anything done. Unless they get rid of the filibuster, then maybe there's a chance. You're a legislative genius. Get rid of the filibuster? Yes, um, just, just because simply of the, the history of it. Now, I understand um, I understand the history that the Senate is supposed to be kind of that saucer that cools, uh, that it's a longer period in terms of having the to talk to different folks, having different rules, kind of slowing down the conversation. Uh, but when you're not able to even have the conversation, and that's the problem. I don't have a problem with the filibuster. If you want to stand up there, as Robert Byrd did against the, the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65 for 24 hours, 36 hours, however long you can stand up there, that's one thing. But to drop by... Um, the leader's office and say, hey, I'm against that bill. And then there's no conversation, no vote, no committee hearing. The bill is just shelved. That's a problem. Um, and so the, the filibuster, certainly if you want to have it, you need to go back to being able to hold the floor um, and voice your opinion, read Dr. Seuss, whatever it takes for you to stand up there. But at some point, Every single bill has to have a hearing and a vote. The unique thing about the Colorado legislature, um, the thing that I loved when I was um, the president and in the majority, the thing that I loathed when I was in the minority is that every single bill has to have a hearing and has to have a vote. And there are timelines where the legislation has to move through. Most states have that. Um, the House, the United States House, somewhat has it. Um, but that's where democracy is just failing in the Senate. So I appreciate what Michael Bennett, my good friend Michael Bennett, has been trying to do in terms of changing this rule. He came in talking about it. Uh, but this, I think, goes back to both Democratic and Republican leaders who are thinking about uh, their defense when, when they lose the majority. So a lot of this hangs on leaders and on both sides who in terms of where we are with the filibuster, but it absolutely either has to be changed or um, rejected wholeheartedly. You bring up Senator Byrd, who used to be part of the KKK, the same clan that has a history in Colorado when my grandfather was trying to practice law here. And, and you think back to Byrd being a Democrat, and the Republicans like to say, hey, Civil rights would not have passed but for a bunch of Republicans, and that's true. And we remember that, but that was then, this is now. And the, the birds and the segregationists who were once Democrats, they went for George Wallace, and then they became part of Nixon's Southern strategy, right? And uh, the parties aren't what they were when our parents were raising us. The Republican Party has slavishly gone to Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy's at Bedminster meeting with Trump late this week. So how do you react to that? I mean, is that another reason the filibuster has to go bye-bye? Because you don't have anybody to talk to over there. 
Yeah, I mean, it has to be radically changed or eliminated because there's not a responsible Republican Party. So there's not a responsible opposition who wants to have a conversation, who wants to engage in negotiation with you around whatever bill might occur. There's a handful of Republicans that maybe you can get on some issues, um, but it's, you know, at some point, Mitt Romney, um, Senator Collins and others are going to say, I, I don't want to do this anymore, or I don't agree with you on on any given bill. Um, but there is no functional Republican Party. Uh, they don't they they literally do not have a platform of ideas or policies. Right. It's whatever Last Donald year. Trump has to yeah, say. And that's what are the exactly ramifications right. of that? Does our system just collapse if one side says we're not going to play? It, it would collapse if um, Democrats had a workable majority of like 60 or more and then just kind of ramrodded stuff through. Now it's just stagnant uh, because of the filibuster. The filibuster, ironically, maybe is keeping the system together. Uh, but the voters would then kind of respond if they thought Democrats went too far. Uh, and then they would swing the pendulum back. Uh, but right now, it's this is what's happening right now is not democracy. Um, there's a great book called Kill Switch. Um, if if your folks haven't read that, and if you haven't had the author on, he's just sensational. Um, but it talks about the history of the filibuster and why it was put in place to begin with. Aaron Burr um, began that process. So that's how far back it goes. But it's gotten out of hand simply because Southern racists and segregation has said, well, we'll use this rule. Um, to hold up conversation around integration, to hold up conversations around civil rights. Uh, and it had just spun out of control from there. I did know you liked that book. I know your other choices because I follow you on social media. <laughs> Kill Switch, Robert E. Lee and Me, and Four Threats. Uh, those are the books you recommend. Uh, we'll get back to it, but I, I, I was going to recommend uh, Forget the Alamo, U.S. Grant and the Holly. U.S. Grant, written by Ron Chernow, who wrote the book about Hamilton that, of course, touches right. on Aaron Burr. So we're going to get to those books, and, and I love that. But the thing that happened, what, I, what I'm dying for your reaction since you served under our Gold Dome for so long. January 6th, I mean, what did that do to our country and what has to happen in the wake of January 6th? I, I thought January 6th would have been something to shock us back into reality, when in fact um, it's done nothing but kind of fuel the big lie that caused it in the first place. And it's become part of the, the, the big lie folks who are out there who say, well, I really wasn't that bad. I was sitting in the same chair I am sitting talking to you, looking at this TV and, I, and I'm watching it and I'm thinking they're not, it was just, I kept saying they're not, they're not actually going to actually go up to the steps of the Capitol. They're not going to really try and break in. They're not going to roam through the halls. So, and I just kept saying that. And I was shocked as I watched that thinking, well, this is America. This is not how we, we do things. And surely those on the right, even those who supported the president, former president, 
would say, you know what, this is wrong. Um, but there's no responsibility on the other side. Everything for them is, does our base like it? Can we use it to ignite our base? Um, and you would have thought after watching uh, insurrectionists breach the Capitol and nearly engage in a coup uh, that those on the right, um, even those who supported the former president would say enough is enough. Um, in fact, did. many they doubled did. down. Kevin McCarthy said it and Mitch McConnell said it. At the time. It. Right. They said it and then they had to take it back because, because why? They got called to the principal's office. Mm -hmm. And the principal Trump said, enough of that. This is what I'm trying to do here. Uh, and it just showed an incredible lack of courage and responsibility from uh, Leader McCarthy and Leader McConnell. I, I don't think I've ever seen uh, two leaders really kowtow to um, the chief of their party the way that these two guys do. Uh, and it's it's damaging to their party. It's damaging to the country. But for many Republicans, and I have friends who I served with in the legislature who have now since left the party um, or trying to pull the party back. Um, but for, for so many of those Republicans, it is uh, party first, power first, country kind of whenever we get to it. January 6th, the Confederate flag running around inside the nation's capital. How did that make you feel, Peter Grob? For what the, the flag represents, uh, it was shocking to me. Um, and, and the fact that it hadn't been in the Capitol, certainly in, used that way ever. Um, and again, I but I do live in Virginia. I can drive down um, Interstate 95 about 10, 15 minutes from where I live, maybe a little bit more, maybe 20. And there is a massive Confederate flag uh, that flies on the eastern side of the highway and you can see it for a few minutes as you're coming up you can see it as uh once you pass it so i mean for the folks down here and still fighting this lost cause and uh trying to talk about what the civil war was really about so from that standpoint it didn't surprise me but um you know again we were going through what Americans have gone through since uh, the beginning of this country in terms of the transfer of power. And to see the Confederate flag, what it symbolizes. And again, that that Confederate flag was not even used in um, the Civil War. That Confederate flag um, didn't fly around capitals, wasn't um, on big poles, on major highways until the 1950s. And it was clearly a signal uh, to those folks who are pushing for integration, pushing for civil rights, that that's not what this country is about. This is the real America. So that that flag, um, just in the fact that it was January 6th, what was going on that day in terms of the certification of the vote, but it was also a message um, about white supremacy and racism in this country that there are some folks who are ready to do whatever it takes to ensure that white people um, stay in control and stay um, heading up their country as they see it. Right, but it was so over the top, I thought it might work to the side of reality and people who 
love honesty and democracy, and people would be so repulsed by it that they would say, we don't want anything to do with that. That's normally what you have happen when extremists act out, but the shocking thing is that they are not bothered by it. And Donald Trump, with his racist tendencies, and his followers, and I didn't know that America had this much racism in it. it it's, it's shocking to me. I understand how things happened in Germany. And were you aware that there was that much racism or people who would tolerate racist acts and Donald Trump with his racism? Isn't that kind of shocking? It's always shocking when you see it, but when you kind of look around and look at the history of this country, it isn't necessarily that surprising. I mean, dealing with race and racism as I have, um, you're kind of surprised when something happens and then you kind of sit at the moment, then you sit back and you think, well, this really isn't a surprise at all. Uh, and, you know, you always kind of wait for the response, right? You wait for the response of the folks who, um, are closest to those extremists or who have um, views that kind of excuse extremism. And we just have seen a whole lot of folks not take responsibility or to try and dumb down. And then now that we are so far away from it, now that we're six months out from it, people are pretending like it didn't happen, um, that we didn't see what we saw, that we can't believe our lying eyes because this is actually what happened. Um, and we've seen that with regard to to race in this country all the time. So from that 10 point, it's not surprising, but every time you think you've gone a little bit closer in terms of trying to make this country um, what it can be, it, it gets disappointing. But, um, you know, what again, you think about it afterwards. Uh, so you're like, well, it's not it's not a surprise, but at least we're not where we used to be. So we continue to move, um, move in the right direction, I think, to um, what this country can be. You've got kids. I've got kids. Hopefully the next generation will be better. It would be hard to be that much worse. But in terms of shock. I'm a Denver fellow, so are you, even though you were born in Chicago. You'd, you'd agree you're a Denver guy, right? I am, yes. And then there's the Western Slope, and we have affection. It's a big part of Colorado. We love all of Colorado. But when they support a Lauren Boebert to represent Colorado, and she's sitting there the morning of January 6th tweeting, it's 1776. I was a prosecutor for quite a while. I can put those things together. But she's as popular as she's ever been. And then, I don't know if you saw Marjorie Taylor Greene's coming to Colorado to head up the El Paso County Republican dinner. Does any of that shock you in our home state of Colorado? I, I was surprised that Lauren, Lauren Berber won. I... I but again, it's a tough seat, and I think what what will be what will be interesting is to watch Republicans who look at what she does, look at what she says, and say, "Is this who we want representing us?" Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to vote for Carrie Donovan or whoever might come out of that primary. Um, but at some point, Republicans have to say, "We can't do this anymore." 
uh, our country is too important. There are too many things that we need to work on. We have to get those people out of office and out of the party. Um, Maybe you've never met Christy Burton Brown, but I mean, that's who's <laughs> heading up the Colorado Republican Party, a bunch of far out, way to the right people. She sponsored the personhood amendment. Well, and again, the, the Colorado Republican Party um, hasn't been really much of a vehicle for moderate Republicans uh, recently. And that has shown in election after election. Uh, when the legislature continues to deepen um, their Democratic numbers, when you now have two um, United States senators who are Democrats, and in the entire, when you look at the entire kind of state elected leadership. So that is beginning to impact Republicans. At some point, there's going to have to be some Republicans with um, moderate tendencies who are not supportive of where their party is going to say enough of this and begin to work to take the party back. But to your point, though, that chair, I believe she was just elected by the party. Um, right. And so it's not it's certainly not going to happen by next year. But I think over time, Republicans are going to say this is just untenable. You can't continue to lose election after election and have the party be irrelevant. Um, and so that's kind of what I keep thinking, that at some point, um, Republicans who are true conservatives will say, we can't do this because we can't, we can't pass any of our policies. We can't pass what we believe in. So they either leave the party, start a new one, which is not the easiest thing to do or they wrest control back of their party. Right, but it's all about loyalty to Trump. There are Trump enforcers galore within the party, and I don't know how many people want to put up with it. And the Dems are kicking ass, but a lot of people are saying, hey, in Colorado, Dems should be kicking further ass. They should have retained control of redistricting. Instead, they gave it away to a, a commission headed up by I see Bill Leone's on it. He was my law school classmate. He was a Republican. I mean, did you guys give away the farm with redistricting? I don't think so. I mean, I think those commissions, I think, are the, probably the right thing to do uh, because it makes races more competitive. And again, I think as a Democrat, I think our ideas are better. I think our ideas... Uh, will transform the state, the country, the city, whatever it might be. Um, and people will reward Democrats for doing that. So I think th the districts will be um, more competitive. And if Republicans continue to nominate those from the far right, even in very close districts or competitive districts, they're still going to lose if they nominate the wrong person. Uh, so I, I think that's going to work out and, and be okay. I know your passion. It's like your old man. You are very involved in education. Education is the key. And aren't you a bit of the father of charter schools in Colorado? I wouldn't go that far because uh, they were there when when I was in the legislature. Um, actually, there there is a funny story about my father who I said, taught um, for 30 plus years, worked in DPS for 30 plus years, was the voice against charters when they came in um, in the early 90s. And in a debate once on the floor, 
um, I was trying to think of who the Democrat was. He and I were going back and forth on the charter question and they read a quote and they said, who said that? Um, and I said, I'm not sure. He said, one Regis Groff said it. And it was this screed about how bad charters were going to be and how awful they were. Um, so I, for my support, I don't think that I would necessarily say I was the father, but certainly we took a lot of opportunities and took the current, what was then the current charter bill and, and created more choice for parents um, within the public school system and kind of took it to another level another level um, for a while um, for folks who judge charter laws Colorado's was the best um, in the country it remains one of the the best in the top three or five depending on who's ranking it still it's still to this day uh, so I did quite a bit of work on on charters you are one of the patriarchs Let's stay on education, this whole controversy about critical race theory. I'm not sure what it all means. I know Derek Bell through a law school thing, but here's what it means to me. It means I want to hear the truth, and I'll deal with it. But tell me about that massacre that happened on Black Wall Street. Why did I have to hear about it? Now that I'm kind of an old man, I never got taught that in Oklahoma. I even touches Colorado, but I never heard about that. And I just read that book, Forget the Alamo. And Ulysses S. Grant, he, he wrote about the Spanish-American War, and he thought it was terrible what happened in Texas. And I had no idea that that was yeah. all about slavery because it was never taught to me by Walt Disney or my history teachers in Denver Public Schools. So... If critical race theory means tell me the truth, then I'm all for it. What's your reaction? I agree with you. <laughs> I, I think the perfect example, and you just gave it, a lot of people came to me and said, recently, I've never heard about Juneteenth. When, when was this? When did it start? When, and I, as you mentioned, I grew up in, in Denver, and Denverites have been selling, celebrating Juneteenth forever i cannot remember a time um in that that particular saturday around the 19th whenever that would fall where there was not a juneteenth parade in northeast denver and, and a festival for as long as um i can remember um and people need to know that people need to know why that is celebrated and, and what it is people need to understand that it wasn't just um, Wall Street, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, which I learned about in high school, thanks to Pat Gatewood and Tammy Roan, who taught me Black history at Eddie's High School. Um, but it's, it was Wilmington, Delaware. It was um, in Texas. It was in Maryland. It was down the street from me in Petersburg and Virginia, where there were a lot of these massacres. Uh, people need to understand the role that race plays in this country, it doesn't make America less exceptional. It doesn't mean that um, that we can say, oh, well, you know, we can't talk about morality or anything else because we did that. I mean, it, uh, human beings are complicated um, and race has played a major role in uh, in the begin from the beginnings of this country. I just received a book um, called 13 Clocks. And John Adams was once asked, um, what was the most 
interesting piece in terms of trying to pull the country together. He says, well, it's like 13 clocks. We were all trying to get make sure that the clocks were on time and that would, you know, ring at noon. And it was just very tough to get folks who believed in different things together. Um, but the one thing that pulled everybody together was the issue of race um, and how to deal with it or not necessarily deal with it as, as the case was. Mm -hmm. So that's really what this is. It's just talking about actual American history. We all need to understand it. We need to learn it. And we need to know how it impacts us today so that we can get better, so that we can become this country that we talk about. And some of it is great. I mean, uh, I watched that Dick Gregory special. I don't know if you saw that, but... Uh, I have Medgar seen it. Yeah, it's very I, good. I, I hadn't... I, he came alive in that documentary, and I thought that was wonderful. And then if you want to... Be proud of American history. Read this book about Ulysses S. Grant, who was a civil rights hero in his time and not only fought right near where you are, Peter, you know, it's Manassas, second Manassas, yep. and and U.S. Grant was a hero, and he was a complicated guy, but then he put down the KKK and Nathan Bedford Forrest. I'm in that part right now. I'm... I'm excited to learn about American heroes, but the racists aren't the heroes. And that's what Donald Trump is. My God, what about the recent revelations? General Mark Milley, top general, said that Trump, he worried he was like Hitler. And we've heard from General Kelly that he admired Hitler. And I can tell you as an attorney, when Obama said that was his bedside reading, the collected works of Hitler, she was right. You could say, well, she was a divorcing wife, but nobody makes up stuff like that. And then Trump acknowledged it. He said, yeah, I got that book, but it was given to me by a Jewish guy. And then the reporter chased down the so-called Jewish guy who said, yeah, I did give him that book. I don't happen to be Jewish, but it's <laughs> true. And, and the guy, he's got techniques of an autocrat, a tyrant, and he must have studied it somewhere. Now, what has surprised me is when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said the last president I worked for, I was worried that he was going to engage in a coup and that it reminded him of Hitler and it reminded him of the Reichstag, that moment. And that now that did surprise me of, of just how bad even the military, which um, as you know, doesn't like to get involved in politics. Many of them probably lean right. Um, have so many of them have said this guy was dangerous, and for the right who claims to be so patriotic and love our servicemen and get all teary when we go to a game and they ask us to stand up and salute the troops, and um, when they're when they're telling you that this is a problem. And you ignore them. That just tells you how far uh, Trump has gotten into the psyche of a, a handful of people when you talk about the country, but enough of a handful of people um, to ensure that we have to have some conversation about how to strengthen the democracy, which no president has had to really discuss um, unless you go back to those right after the Civil War. We now are trying to figure out how do we make sure this country doesn't fall apart uh, because of what Donald Trump has said, how he has sold it, 
um, and the fact that responsible people um, have said he shouldn't be doing this, he's wrong, but not enough of them have, have stepped up. So, I mean, kudos to um, Chairman Milley for saying not only that piece, but also kind of on the critical race theory and what he tries to instill in, in his troops. I think there's going to have to be a reckoning, hopefully in politics, just like in Georgia, where the Republicans lost a place where they normally won. I think that has to change. And then courtrooms have to get involved. People who are lawyers need to prove the truth in courtrooms. I hope that happens and soon. And then we need statesmen like your late father. And you frequently quote on social media Martin Luther King for the proposition, nothing is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Why do you like that quote of his so much? Because I think so many of um, the leaders, particularly on the right, know exactly what they're doing. Um, they're not being honest. They're not being responsible. Um, and, and that's dangerous. And it, it goes directly to what Martin Luther King said. It's one thing if you just don't know, right? But it's another thing if, if you know and then immediately say the complete opposite and lie and cheat and kind of steal your way to to where you want to go. That's dangerous. And it, it puts the country um, on the precipice of something I, I never thought that I would say in terms of if you're a coup or the complete collapse of, of our democracy. And folks initially said that about Donald Trump. And I'm like, nah, it'll be okay. A couple of folks will stand up and kind of put him in his place. But as he continued to serve, and I use that term, that phrase or that word loosely, um, I could see where it was all about power. It wasn't about country. It wasn't about doing the right thing. It wasn't about the democracy. It was about, can we make Kevin McCarthy speaker? Can we ensure that um, Mitch McConnell would stay the leader during um, Trump's time? That's what this was about. And I think that that's dangerous because they know exactly what they're doing. Um, they know exactly the lies they're telling um, and the potential impact. And so that's why I will, will put that up periodically, just to get people thinking that it is one thing to just not know, um, but it's also a thing to, to know and, um, and give misinformation or just flat out lie. Right, that brings us back to McConnell and McCarthy. But let's move forward. Have you read that book, The Holly, by Julius Rubenstein? I haven't, and I did. I just wrote it down. Let me tell you, so what district did you represent? What were the boundaries? Basically from the airport um, to downtown in Denver. And then as far south as it kind of jogged back and forth. But basically... Um, 12th Avenue, around in there, 12th, 13th, um, and then up to the uh, the county line north. Right. So you had Park Hill. You had five points. I did. I did. Well, this is all about it. I, I want you to read this book because it's fascinating. The protagonist is Terrence Roberts, who I bet you know, and maybe his family, too. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're going to like this book. But he talks about the history of racism in Denver, which, of course— if you think about it, and I know you have, Peter, 
Colorado was part of the Texas territory, right? I mean, Mexico yeah. owned us. Did you know that the Alamo uh, was about slavery when you were growing up? You're just a little younger than me. Did did you think that Daniel Boone was a good guy or a bad guy? I, I haven't and done, Davy Crockett. Right. I, I haven't done it. Again, I wrote down. Uh, forget the Alamo that you Forget mentioned. the Alamo. That's a great book. And and it, it, they blamed the Mexican-Americans for years. These guys like Jim Bowie, he was a slave trader. He was a murderer. And he was drunk all the time. Same with Travis. And Austin wasn't that much better. But Texas was a wild land. And the only way that it got any prosperity was Southerners came in to grow cotton, and of course, they weren't going to pick it themselves. They needed slaves to do it. But Mexico said, well, you're welcome to develop the land, but we don't like slavery. You see, we've been picked on by Spain for years, and they have a caste system based on color of skin. We hate that. So, yeah, you're welcome in our country, but no slavery, please. But these guys who defended the Alamo, they were there to defend slavery. Well, this goes to, again, that lost cause and the, the great conversation in the book, Robert E. Lee and Me, where folks know exactly, again, it goes back to that King quote, but they know exactly who these folks were. And, you know, what we should be saying is, look, some of the our founding fathers, many of them obviously were slave owners, racists, bigots, etc. But they also came up with... Um, the greatest government model that this world has ever seen. Two things can be true, but we need to share with folks that exactly who these people were and exactly what they did and how they did it so that we can be better. Uh, but so often we defend their actions or just ignore their actions. Um, you know, Robert Lee, Robert E. Lee being among them. Robert E. Lee has killed more United States um, Army members than any person in the history of the world. Yet, um, I can walk down um, the street and see uh, Robert E. Lee's street. I can walk down into um, a, a home of uh, one of my daughter's friends and see a big picture of, of Robert E. Lee. Um, that we can celebrate folks like this um, because we say, well, you know, it's not what you think. It wasn't that bad. You know, now we're hearing the slavery really wasn't that bad um, because of they, they need to be able to hold these, these folks up. Right. And it, in one way, because we're both members of minority groups, the Black Jewish shared experience is really profound. Martin Luther King and Rabbi Heschel, yep. a blessed memory. But the other thing is when we're in school, obviously around Christmas, when Christmas carols are sung, I know the words and I'd sing along. That's fine. But then, you know, the reverence for historical figures like William Shakespeare. How many times did I have to study Shakespeare? But he was an anti-Semite, which went along with the territory, or Charles Lindbergh. What an anti-Semite and right. Nazi sympathizer he was, yet he's venerated in San Diego and parts of the world. Even FDR, you know, you and I can say he was great, but he could have done better by a lot of people. And then you're dealing with 
Washington and Jefferson. Here I went to George Washington High School, and I didn't think a lot about that, but you know what I mean? It, isn't that a shared experience between minority members? It is. I mean, there, you think about the civil rights movement and um, the work of Jewish folks to be part of the, the brain trust of King and others. Um, and you can see that through throughout history. Um, you know, the, the great work, um, some of the great things that we did in the legislature, it was Dan Grossman and, um, and Abel Tapia and Jennifer Vega, all folks who were from groups that have experienced um, racism and bigotry. Um, th that's the strength of this country. And that's why we need to understand the role that um, race and bigotry has played in this country so that we can make it even greater. We shouldn't have to kind of hide that because we're ashamed of it. Or for the folks who are not ashamed of it and who are, want to embrace it, those are the, that's why we need to tell folks who these, who these people, the Founding Fathers, really were. Um, you know, the, the Hamilton uh, musical, which I'd watch probably more than I should um, or sing along more than I should, does a very good job at, at looking at the complicated nature of the people who created this country. And it's OK. No one is perfect. And, and so we, we need to understand that we need to learn it and then we need to learn from their mistakes. Gosh, I love Hamilton and his role was explained to me in a way I never understood before. I, I need to understand a role that you can help me, Peter, because you're a religious guy. Your wife's a clergy member. Maybe you're part of the clergy, mm -hmm. too. I mean, you do everything. No, I'm not. What, what, <laughs> is there a connection between uh, Donald Trumpism and Christianity? There is not because of faith, but there is because of power. And, and so the Republican Party obviously drawing a lot on white evangelicals. Um, but they don't understand, and, or maybe they do, um, but they certainly don't act like they understand that Donald Trump is not necessarily a Christian in terms of what, what we might think of it in terms of going to church, reading the Bible, compared to our current president um, who goes to mass a lot. I know, but it doesn't um, matter to the Jen Ellis's and the Lauren Boebert's. They trumpet their Christianity and they worship Donald Trump right along with Jesus. Is that some far out version of Christianity you're unfamiliar with or does it flow from your religion. I, I, I'm genuinely I, curious. What is there something about Christianity that attracts people to Donald Trump? Is this end times revelations? What is it? What it is, I think, is based on what he says he's going to do, not what he does. I mean, clearly they would have some, if, if they were so deep in faith, they would have a fact that they would be concerned about the fact that he has three ex-wives, I think, kids from different, uh, from all these different women, his behavior outside of the bounds of marriage, um, his use of language, the way he um, operates is clearly outside of when I think of Christians as what, what we try to do. 
he's not even trying to stop it or trying to realize that, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, but what he does say now, because he didn't used to say, but what he does say now is well, I'm against abortion. And so for many in the white evangelical political world, that's their big thing. And we'll see what the court does um, next term on that very question. That's their big issue. Right, but he they didn't just say that. He gave them, he may have three wives, but he gave them three pro-life justices. And that issue, um, did you favor expanding the Supreme Court? You want to get rid of the filibuster? Does the Supreme Court need to be expanded to deal with what Trump did? I don't think so, you know, I because I just don't see where it stops, right? So if we say, well, you know, we're we're down three, so let's put on four, and they say, oh, we're down one, so let's put on two, and then we keep going, you know, we don't need 299 people sitting on the court. Um, I think we, so I no, I do not expand, I do not support expanding the court. Um, and I understand why people want to do it. I understand that the concern, particularly um, on that question of uh, a woman's right to choose um, and what the court may do um, in the next term. But I just don't I don't think that's the way to go. I think that that would be a, a huge mistake. Before we leave the field of religion, QAnon had you ever contemplated that something like that could take off to the degree it has in America? Again, absolutely not. When you hear that Hillary Clinton had some sex ring with kids in some D.C. pizza parlor, you're like, there is no way that people are going to believe that. But not only did they believe it, they rallied around it, and then they deepened conspiracies and now begin to just make stuff up. Um, but I think it's it, it receives so much attention just because of the bizarre nature of what they're saying. I, I still think that there's more people who say, that's ridiculous. Um, this is this is the issue that I care about, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's healthcare, whether... Um, it's employment. I, I think there's just way more people, and we continue to see that election after election as, as Democrats um, gain more success, that people are, are serious about the issues, the real policy issues that face the country and not um, kind of the comic book stuff that we see from Right. And you know, you're a policy wonk, and I'm an independent, and you give me an issue, I'll tell you what side I'm on. Sometimes it will please you, sometimes it won't. But it seems to me that this all falls away right now with Trumpism ascendant. Are you for it or are you against it? And I'm ready to rally with anybody who's against it now because I see it as such a threat. Am I simplifying politics too much or is it that black and white right now? Say that one more time. Is, is, is it just cut and dry? Are you willing to, you know, make common cause with anybody who will op oppose Trumpism? Because I am. Yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, I know and I don't want to call names to Republican friends who um, have reached out to me and said, hey, is there anything I can do? I don't want to necessarily come out and say I'm voting for Biden. But there are, are there anything if there's anything that we can 
do let me know. I think you look at folks like the Lincoln Project and others who say, at this point, the biggest thing we need to do, and this was you know, during last election, is oppose Trump. And now the biggest thing we need to do is oppose Trumpism. And so it will be very interesting to see the impact of groups like the Lincoln Project um, with the election next year. Um, whether you see a, a switch in the House, which is historic. Right. Um, you know, history says that the sitting president is going to lose seats, probably lose control. But it will be very interesting because the former president's going to be out and about supporting a lot of nominees. And if that costs Kevin McCarthy, who's within a few votes now of being speaker, maybe the Republican Party says enough. If, again, the Senate breaks down 50-50 or the Democrats pull something off and maybe get 52 or 53, will McConnell say, we can't do this? Um, I think it's just going to be election after election where Democrats just continue to beat down Republicans until Republicans say, this is untenable. In Donald Trump, you need to stop or just completely ignore him and rebuild their party. God willing that everybody turns out to vote because if the Republicans take the House, they will impeach Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and they will do it just because they get a tweet from Mar-a-Lago or whatever social media platform he's on. You recommended three books. Give us just uh, a little uh, reason why we should go out and buy Four Threats. What's that about? Four Threats is about the four threats to the democracy that um, the two authors believe um, are problematic. And one, and we've really kind of talked about them. Um, one of which I think, though, is unique, but it's uh, race and nativism. It's uh, the economic inequities that, that face the country. Um, and the big one, though, that I think a lot of people don't think about, which they put it's kind of a, a pox on both our houses, is executive um, expansion, the, the reach of mm -hmm. the executive office. And that one, I think, is just really unique. And they kind of walk through how the founding fathers envisioned the office of the presidency, but either because of emergencies or because of an ineffective Congress. This Congress um, being ineffective is not something that is, <laughs> is brand new to Washington, D.C. Right. There are um, the and checks and balances. That's what we need. That's right. right. Yeah. And, and so really just dealing with um, just dealing with the, the new power that, that presidents that presidents have. You spoke about Robert E. Lee and me. I take it that somebody wrote a memoir who knew Robert E. Lee. No, Robert E. Lee is a, and me is about um, the unusual support that Robert E. Lee has throughout kind of the military and the South. And Ty Sigley, who is, I think he retired as a brigadier general, I think is the, the, the title, but he taught history at West Point, um, grew up in Virginia and wanted to be a Virginia gentleman. Um, and that was the big thing for him and, and folks his age um, I don't know how old you are. I'm 58. So um, he's I roughly. I graduated GW class of 74. You can do the math. 
Okay, I'll, I'll do that, and I won't say. Um, but he's roughly in our age group, right? So, um, but was walking through West Point one day and had just taught a, a class on the, the Civil War and how um, Grant was able to turn the war around and blah, blah, blah. And noticed that there was a Robert E. Lee street and Robert E. Lee barracks. And he was like, why is this guy who was um, a graduate of West Point, um, why is he celebrated when he killed more uh, members of the United States Army than anyone in history? Why do we celebrate him? And began to kind of dig in. Um, And not only did he kind of wonder about that, but he also went to Washington and Lee University, which is um, in Lexington, Virginia, with where the um, Virginia uh, Military Institute is, VMI is. Um, And just the role that Lee played um, vis-a-vis George Washington of the Washington part. It was Washington and Lee. And there's way more stuff about Robert E. Lee than George Washington. And so it, it's his um, kind of reckoning with race and the role that race has played in this country and why we, you know, we need to take down the statutes, but also teach about who Lee really was um, and what he supported. And so it, it's a very, very interesting book about a guy who grew up in the South um, and would and wanted to be a Washington, wanted to be a kind of a Virginia gentleman, which is, you know, you kind of run right. everything. And, and so I imagine we'll learn about the lost cause. That's another thing they that's, didn't teach yeah, us that's in the history drives books. the book, yeah. That third book, Kill Switch, what's that about again? Kill Switch is the history of um, the filibuster, how right. it started, how it's gotten totally out of control, but more importantly, why. Um, and then uh, Adam Gentleson gives some ideas about how you might fix it. But it's a very interesting read about uh, how basically segregation has given us the filibuster as we think of it today. Uh, when Aaron Burr kind of came up with it, it was kind of an idea of to make sure that the minority had some voice in the discussion. So he wanted to be able to say, hey, let's allow. Um, everyone in the chamber to have a conversation on it, but certainly not hold it up. If you didn't have the vote, you didn't have the vote. Um, And then it's kind of just slowly morphed into this monster of uh, before when, you know, when I think of the filibuster, I think of what happened in the sixties, right. And bird and others, um, you know, segregationists, white sympathizers, white um, supremacy folks. Um, standing up and holding the floor for 14 hours, right? So a bill couldn't be voted on. But then ultimately, they had to go to the restroom or got tired, and then that was the end of the filibuster and the vote occurred. Um, and it's just really how it's morphed from from that. Um, it's a very, I mean, if you're a history buff and you're really concerned about where the Senate is and why it is, it's a great book. Let me tease this to you, although Terrence Carroll would like it more than you, Peter Groff, because he's more of a cowboy. But U.S. Grant, when he was at West Point and throughout his life, you know what he could do better than anybody? And it wasn't drink alcohol. (laughs) What? That guy could ride a horse. 
like he was a centaur. Isn't that the word where you're attached to it? He uh, just, yes, even yes. when he was drunk, he could ride a horse better than most men, humanly. He, he was I born have, to be a jockey, is what I'm saying. I have heard that book is incredible. My dear friend, Dan Grossman, who I just had dinner with um, last week, um, is reading it currently. It's like, dude, you've got to read this book. It so. is a great book. I, I had no idea. That's where American history can throw you. Wait. I mean, I think it was Frederick Douglass who spoke of what a civil rights hero for his time, U.S. Grant, was. And he married a woman who had slaves, you know, and that was a Missouri story. I have a couple things figured out because you are not hard on Nolan Arenado for abandoning the Rockies because I bet he went to your second favorite team, which is the Cardinals, owing to your father growing up near the Cardinals in Illinois. Am I right? Well, I don't think he abandoned them. I think they they didn't do what they told him. And he said, well, get me out of here because I don't want to spend the rest of my time being 500 in my great career. Um, the Cardinals did not become my, they're not really my second team, but I do follow them because of him, oh, okay. um, which would drive my father crazy because he was a Cubs fan. Um, oh, okay. so, because yeah. of the Chicago thing, you know, my old man, That's like right. St. Louis, I said, why? He said, cause when he was growing up, it was the closest team to Denver and he liked Stan Musial. That makes sense. That right. makes perfect sense. I think so. You could probably hear it on the radio, too. You know, you've spent such a good deal of time with me. Let's end on an up note. I see your beautiful children on social media. The future is in our kids. And how about Amanda Gorman at the inaugural? Did she impress you or what? That was incredible. And I had heard of her um, because CBS, this I, my morning TV watching is bouncing back and forth between CBS this morning and Morning Joe. And CBS this morning had named her the National Young Poet or whatever. So I'd heard of her and they showed a couple of pieces. I said, oh, she's pretty good. Um, so when she got up, I said, this should be pretty good. And I, we were watching it. I don't think my, my son was watching it. I believe my daughter was too, because my wife made her come down. Um, and so the four of us are watching it. And then when she was done, we just looked at each other like, oh, my God, that was incredible. I mean, it's when I look at um, my daughter's friends and my daughter and my son and her friends, my nephew and niece, um, and who they hang out with, the, the future is good. The future is bright. We just don't need to screw it up any more than we have so that they can take the country to the next level because the young people – um, that I see and interact with are incredible and they're ready to lead, it's, you know, right. and, and they're going to be moving us out of the way here soon. I mean, to me, women of color rescued us from Donald Trump, people of color. I mean, we owe such a debt of gratitude. And it seems to me that women of color through opportunity and through the struggle, through education and maybe even your charter schools, but mainly through good parenting, a lot of these kids are so impressive, and it's not just Amanda Gorman, but what about Zayla Avant-Garde? That also was incredible, and I usually watch the spelling bee, and I missed it. And so imagine my shock when I see her uh, the next morning holding the, the trophy. Um, 
but you know, you're to your point that the heart and soul of the Democratic Party are African American women. Um, they continue to put us in the right place, uh, put us in office, and allow us to to work on some of these issues that are so critical. Um, and we just don't. We need to make sure, particularly folks in elected office, don't need to let them down because they continue um, to to save us from ourselves. All we need is Amanda and Zayla to get in power. And if you want to watch a girl with athletic talent, my God, her dribbling videos, the same girl who won the Spelling Bee Award, I've never seen anything like it. She's just no, got She an holds amazing... like three records, right? Three Guinness Book of World Records dribbling basketballs. Right. And they have a and smile on their face. This world will be so much better when that generation grows up. That's my hope for the future. I, I hope we get to watch it and I hope our democracy survives till then. What's your prediction for the future, Peter Grop? I think it's good. I think that even though we, we are stumbling around right now, we continue to press forward with a lot of good young leaders and a new generation right behind them. We're, we're going to be okay. Um, it's just a matter of continuing to uh, force people to take responsibility for their actions and understand that people aren't perfect, um, but we'll learn from our mistakes and we'll continue to, to fight for it. Is it a mistake, term limits in Colorado? Because you have so much more to give. You did your time as a rep and then state senator. Does that system work or should that be revisited? Shouldn't somebody think, be able to serve like your old man for 20 years? Yes, I'm not sure why they would, but yes, I think they should. I, I think term limits um, is is problematic. It gives a lot of power to the lobby and the staff. To this point, um, we haven't necessarily had any issues with that, but they're not elected. In uh, particularly, the lobby has um, uh, has a role that they play that they are paid to to do, um, and so they have something that they, their job is to ensure that their clients are taken care of. And as a consultant, now I understand that. But it, it's just it's a bad deal, I think, for for Coloradans. They should be determining who is in office and, and who isn't. Um, you know, very few people, I think, would want to stay around for that long because it is a hard job. Um, but they should, you know, you shouldn't be able to not vote for somebody um, because their time is up if they've been really, really good. Right. Because you did a great job as a young man. You're smarter than ever. You were at your zenith. And we got it on a podcast. Peter Groff, thanks a million, man. I appreciate it. Good talking all, all to right. you. All right. Great talking to you. Bye now. Bye. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. 
Uh, we both pride ourselves on being good attorneys and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you wanna go through a few of these right now and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. And they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my... My website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. And we are back. I like Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. He's composed. He's smart. He's compassionate. He's everything you would want in a Surgeon General, but a lot of people won't listen to him. Some won't because he's not white. Isn't that a darn shame? Race is at the heart of a lot of this. But he told me to be nice to everybody and treat them like a professional. And I am a professional. I'm a lawyer. I don't ask everybody's politics. And I try to get everybody a good result if they put their trust in me. And Dr. Murthy, he wants the best for America, which means vaccinations. Once we get to herd immunity, we are free of the pandemic for the most part, but we can't get to herd immunity if people won't get vaccinated. And there's so much misinformation, and it flows from Denver Trump Radio. And I'm going to try to be nice because I'd like you to send this to somebody who might regard my former radio stations as trusted sources of information, when in reality, you get so much misinformation. And Lord knows I've had good interactions with Republicans in the past, but now that two statewide officials, the Pompadour and Christy Burton Brown, are statewide elected by those guys. Anyway, let's go back to Dr. Murthy and hear what he has to say, because this is a smart man. Listen to him explain why the pandemic is not over. It's due to misinformation, which is an imminent and insidious threat to the welfare of all of us and our ability to get back to normal. And that's why I want to talk to you today about one of the biggest obstacles that's preventing us from ending this pandemic. Today, I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the dangers of health misinformation. Surgeon General advisories are reserved for urgent public health threats. And while those threats have often been related to what we eat, drink, and smoke, today we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. Health misinformation is false, 
inaccurate or misleading information about health, according to the best evidence at the time. And while it often appears innocuous on social media apps, on retail sites, or search engines, the truth is that misinformation takes away our freedom to make informed decisions about our health and the health of our loved ones. During the COVID-19 pandemic, health misinformation has led people to resist wearing masks in high-risk settings. It's led them to turn down proven treatments and to choose not to get vaccinated. This has led to avoidable illnesses and death. Simply put, health information has cost us lives. Now, health misinformation didn't start with COVID-19. What's different now, though, is the speed and scale at which health misinformation is spreading. Modern technology companies have enabled misinformation to poison our information environment with little accountability to their users. They've allowed people who intentionally spread misinformation, what we call disinformation, to have extraordinary reach. They've designed product features, such as like buttons, that reward us for sharing emotionally charged content, not accurate content. And their algorithms tend to give us more of what we click on, pulling us deeper and deeper into a well of misinformation. And now Dr. Murthy explains the consequences that there are some places where two-thirds of the population are not vaccinated. That's going to cost people their lives, innocent people, children. Calm down, Craig. Dr. Murthy said, you got to be calm. I'm going to keep trying. Thank you very much. Surgeon General, is misinformation the number one reason why people are not getting vaccinated? Well, Caitlin, it's one of several reasons why people are not getting vaccinated, but it's a very important one because what we know from polls, Caitlin, is that two-thirds of people who are not vaccinated either believe common myths about the COVID-19 vaccine or think some of those myths might be true. Myths like you can get COVID from the vaccine, which is absolutely not true. Uh, so we know that it's not the only driver uh, that's leading people not to be vaccinated, but it is a very important one. And do you personally believe that public figures and public companies that are helping spread misinformation about the vaccine should be held accountable? Well, I think in a moment like this, when we see misinformation literally costing us our loved ones, costing us lives, all of us have to ask how we can be more accountable and responsible for the information that we share. And those of us who may have larger platforms, I think bear a greater responsibility uh, to, to think about that. But the bottom line is all of us have an important role here to play. And technology companies uh, have a particularly important role. Uh, we know that the dramatic increase in the speed and scale of spread of misinformation has in part been enabled uh, by these platforms. So that's why in this advisory today, we are asking them to step up. We know they have taken some steps to address misinformation, but much, much more has to be done, and we can't wait longer for them to take aggressive action because it's costing people their lives. And now here's where Dr. Murthy displays his professionalism. He gets a question that tries to hold people like Tucker Carlson and other broadcasters and politicians accountable, but the good doctor is not going there. Question. Um, so are there specific elected leaders that you believe are part of the problem with pushing this misinformation? And we had an ABC News Washington Post poll that showed that 93% of Democrats say they're vaccinated or will be vaccinated, but only 49% of Republicans say the same. So how do you break through to the people who may be trusting some of these elected uh, leaders that are pushing maybe some of this misinformation more than they actually trust members of your own administration? Well, thanks, Rachel. You know, I, I think about this as I, as I think about doctoring and as I think about my approach to patients, which is I recognize that 
each patient that I was blessed to care for is an individual, you know, regardless of what their political affiliation or their past may be. Uh, they're an individual, and I, my goal was to understand what their needs and desires were, what their values were, and then to help them improve their health. We have to take a similar approach here when it comes to reaching people with information about COVID-19 and the vaccine. Okay, this takes all my composure because the pompadour has on Marjorie Taylor Greene, who insults the Jewish people with her QAnon conspiracy theories, with her bigotry, with her stupidity, with the fact that she talked about COVID vaccinations being the equivalent of what she called gold stars on Jewish people. I'm a Jewish person. They were yellow, ma'am. I need to be nice. But then she said, maybe I should not have used that Nazi imagery. And she went to the Holocaust Museum and she said in the microphone that she had been chastened. She learned, but then she's immediately back calling our government's plan to go door to door to see if a vaccine might be administered, the equivalent of medical brown shirts. Again, a Nazi reference, predictably followed by Lauren Boebert talking about Nazi needles after she went to CPAC in Texas and she talked about the Fauci ouchie. Anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene has quite a fan in the pompadour who will let her say anything and probably was involved in getting her invited to come to Colorado. In any event, it's not unusual to flip on Denver radio anymore and hear the guy who took over my time spot where I corrected misinformation. He's the chief spewer of misinformation, this time courtesy of Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're all back home in our districts, or at least that's where we should be. There's <laughs> some of them that just stay in the swamp and never go home. But um, the rest of us are at home in our districts doing district work and, and, you know, being with our families and, and doing our job at home. Um, what it'll be interesting to see, there's been a huge public outcry against this, and rightfully so. It is absolutely outrageous to think that the government is going to send some kind of, um, you know, I call them medical brown shirts, but they always get so triggered when I say things like that. They're, it's okay for them to call us. Nazis and fascists for four years straight, but if you turn it back around on them, they, they lose their mind. Okay, there's a dubious claim. Thousands dead from the vaccine. I looked it up. It's not even in the hundreds. A lot of reports of deaths after vaccination, which will happen naturally, needs to be reported. But when they investigate whether the vaccine caused it, de minimis, not thousands. But according to MTG, the initials of Marjorie Taylor Greene. COVID ain't that bad. It's a highly survivable virus. What about long COVID? What about erectile dysfunction, Pompadour and Marjorie Taylor Greene? What about the brain fog that goes along with all that? The myriad of symptoms. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Calm down, Craig. Here's Marjorie Taylor Greene on with the Pompadour. Filling in for Stephen Tubbs, who was out because he got COVID because he didn't get vaccinated. More about that in a second. Calm down, Craig. Here's MTG on Denver Trump Radio. Stay off of our lawn. Don't come near my door trying to tell me or my family to get a vaccine because it's our, it's our right to choose to get one or not. 
and stay out of it. Um, this is a this is a virus that yes, it has killed. Uh, you know, I think we're over six hundred thousand Americans, but there's also millions and millions, and they don't even want to talk about it. I think we're around forty million people that have had COVID nineteen and survived it. This is a highly survivable virus, even though it's deadly for some, but their biggest risk factor is obesity. Sadly, obesity is the biggest risk factor, but they don't ever want to talk about that, and they don't want to solve the real problem. They just want to make sure that you get jabbed in the arm with their non-FDA-approved vaccine. I've seen Pompadour, that obesity thing. Hey, I don't know the exact measures, but then he's almost 65 himself. But the one thing about him, he has the youthful blush of love. He loves him. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, listen to him pronounce it. It's 328, Randy Corcoran. What a great interview. Uh, and I'm not talking about my interview skills. Just listening to Marjorie Taylor Greene. That is an America First Republican in action. Those are the people I can get excited about. Nothing turns on a bigoted talk show host more than an American firster. They love that crap. Calm down, Craig. Dr. Murthy, Dr. Murthy, Vivek Murthy. But the other things that the Pompadour does with the no masking, contempt for gay Jewish Jared Polis, talking about Barack Hussein Obama, we got the code. And we cannot stand the way you guys have taken the word patriot and really wrecked it. Same thing with the flag. We're not going to let you do it. I'm a patriot. I went to George Washington High School. But this guy's got a shtick in which he wraps himself in the flag just like his hero Donald Trump hugged the flag. This guy does it every day on the radio. And it's so transparent, but people dig it. Calm down, Craig. Dr. Murthy. if I was still on the radio, I'd be making fun of this. All right, we've got a busy show ahead for you. So I don't, I want to take advantage of this opening on the clock to do what I love to do. Making it as sometimes I forget still, but trying to make it a habit on Wake Up with Randy Corcoran 9 to noon on Saturdays and did it quite a bit here during my opportunity to sit in for Stefan while we got him back and ready to go. And that is this. And, and it's so essential. This is not a gimmick. This is not a shtick. This is not something that I think is cute or everybody likes it or whatever. To me, this is the essence of everything that the left is trying to cancel, that the left is trying to shut down. And so if you will just take a moment, and if you're driving, be careful. Remove your hat if you're wearing one. Find your heart if you still have one. Imagine a flowing, blowing flag somewhere, and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah, I can say the Pledge of Allegiance, too. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You get that last part? For all. People of color. People who are immigrating here. People who don't look like you, who don't have a pompadour, 
What kind of lawyer is Corcoran? Well, the guy confesses on himself during afternoon drive. Would you want this guy for your lawyer? Listen to him talk about a former client. I want to do. I've been dying to tell you this story real quick, and then we'll take our news break. I settled a case where I had sued a former client for money uh, that wasn't paid over the course of years and years and years. And so statute of limitations was about out, and we thought, nah, this is too much to just let go. And I uh, went ahead and sued sued the person. And the person's step-parent was on the fee agreement. So you sue both people, of course. And uh, the only person we were able to serve was the step-parent, who then had a lawyer get in touch with us. And turns out that the step-parent and the client were estranged and no contact, apparently, according to them. And uh, gosh, you know, we paid some of the early money and we don't want to pay this whole thing. Massive bill. I mean, let me put it this way. The interest on this bill was 10 grand. So um, I felt sorry for the guy. I mean, it's, you know, I I have a stepkid or two and uh, uh, I would sign for them in a flat cat second. And then to have years later that come back to bite you and you're not even in relationship, that hurts. So I made a deal that just made us whole for our cost of collection and our the actual underlying work that was done and never paid for to let him out of the lawsuit. The check came today and it came with a cute little note as agreed between Randy Corcoran and my attorney blank. This blank significant blank payment releases me from Corcoran's blank, blank matter signed blankety blank. Also Trump lost the election. I just about fell out of my chair. First, I thought, why did I make this guy a deal? But really, I, it's just hilarious. And then I look at the check, and it's filled out properly. My name, the uh, significant payment, the signature down there in the memo, it says blank and blank matter. And then between the memo, blank, blank matter, and the signature, blank, 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 he also wrote in Trump lost. So. Somebody's listening, I guess, or uh, a little bit sore about the fact that we are not letting go of this stolen election. All right. We well, what a story, but always the big lie ending. I'd like to see that lawsuit publicly filed. Maybe he's telling the truth about that, but he doesn't about the election. He parrots Donald Trump, and even when the big lie is blown up, in Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Colorado, wherever it's said, these guys don't deal in facts. Peter Boyles called out the big lie until he capitulated to Corcoran, documented well by me in my podcast, Boyles Capitulation. Boyles capitulated to Corcoran. He capitulated to another big liar. Her name, Lauren Boebert. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I love Lauren Boebert. There's a reason. Why does it matter? Because Boyles essentially runs Salem Media Colorado. And he's all in on Trump, which means he's all in on January 6th now. Because that flowed right from Donald Trump. It's a menace. Dr. Murthy said to call these things out, this misinformation stuff. Let's get back to health. Because on the old show I did, Afternoon Drive, 630K, how the fill-in was none other than Christy Burton Brown, who I talked about with Peter Groff. 
Christy Burton Brown goes on the show as the Republican state chairman, and she actively engages and encourages the misinformation about vaccines. She has a caller on who said 9,000 people have died from the vaccine, and she goes, "Mm mm-hmm, uh-huh. And then she thinks it's great call. More misinformation. Be responsible, Ms. Brown. And quit spreading the conspiracy theories that Joe Biden wants to track you, this, that, the other. This is a public health emergency. Give us a break. Donald Trump, again, Dr. Murthy, Dr. Murthy, please, Mr. Former President. Hey, you came up with that name, Operation Warp Speed. That was beautiful. All right. And then the vaccines are wonderful. And you took one and your family did, even though you already had COVID. You know who else had COVID? Just like the president, really sick. Got the great cocktail that saved him. Stephen Tubbs, the afternoon host on 710. That guy, he had no vaccine, even though it was available for many months. He's an anti-vaxxer. I guess. And then he didn't hang out by himself. He was around a bunch of people at graduation festivities for his kid. Well, let him tell the story and see where trusted people, because some people trust Stephen Tubbs. God almighty, they do. And this guy is saying, I've been through the worst of it, and you don't need to get vaxxed. I didn't get vaxxed. I'd never get vaxxed. Let him speak for himself. I was really sick. I did have thoughts of, is this the way I'm going to go? But that said, I know for a fact I had it so lucky and I was so lucky and I have health insurance and I got great care and I live in the United States of America and I got the treatment of the remedzivir or whatever it's called and I got the three-day cocktail of that. I, I know millions of people around the world. Not just obviously those who died, but those that got much sicker than me that are still sick today. I was lucky. But I've never shared this, and I've tried not to talk about the COVID thing. Many of you realized I was gone. We had people that, that, well, it wasn't me that was here, and we didn't try to make it a secret. When I got the positive test, so I went down the tubes on a Thursday afternoon. And I went from an event that we, I was with my sister and brother-in-law and my son, and I just went in about a three-hour window just weak, and I, I got to go get a test. I think I have COVID. So anyway, I did a drive-through uh, test, and it was not the quick turnaround test. It was one of those that took days to confirm. Anyhow, well, following, following four days later, three days later, I get and of course, you got to give them all your information. And, and I didn't feel like I was being violated or anything like that. I wanted to know and monitor even more closely. So the part that I haven't shared is and this makes sense, but it kind of in a way goes back to this administration story today. You know, red flagging problematic posts. It's this big brother mentality. When I once I found out I was positive with covid. I got, I think, in a matter of less than 48 hours, and this is what I can remember fairly clearly. 
I got a tech or a, uh, yeah, I got multiple texts and phone calls. I heard from Tri-County Health. I heard from the state health department leaving me voicemails. And there was one other that I, I can't remember what entity it was that reached out. I'm here to tell you, I never return their texts and I never return their emails. Sorry, I didn't. I was very sick. I mean, and that's the other thing uh, going down a rabbit hole. I'm as sick as I have ever been in my life. And they're expecting me to just return their phone call at 720 COVID now or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. No, I got more. I got bigger issues right now than returning Tri-County Health's phone call. Now back to what Larry brought up. So now that I am and I am I have not been, I will not be vaccinated. Note, not telling you to get one, not telling you not to get one. You do you. If you got to rely on me to tell you what to do with your health, you got more problems in getting the vaccine. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. I guess it was inevitable, Troubadour Dave Gunders. You would get so big that you would have to kind of leave the podcast in the lurch because we don't have a recorded song by you. You have a lot of songs recorded, but you have not found the vehicle to deliver this week. I've got a plan to overcome that, but what say you? Are you really that busy? Uh, I'm not too busy to sing a song. 
I understand that. And as I further understand things, you have mastered your next album. When is the release date? Well, the release date is uh, the music is is done, mastered and done, and I'll be able to uh, to uh, start sending you the the, the chosen um, uh, selections starting next week. But uh, so the the and the CD is still in design. We have prepared for this eventuality because it's no secret we walk our dogs. Do you know my dogs? Right Skyler here. and Ico. Skylar and Ico. Okay, now what song do we sing as we walk Skylar, Ico, and Riley? And the rare occasion you're nice enough to take your second dog, Heidi. What do we sing? What song have you taught me? I'm not a professional singer like you, but you you have me play a part in a duet. Do you know what that song is? It is. It's it's the uh, Neville Brothers, and it's Brother John, Ico, Ico. You never told me that the back half of that song was Ico Ico. Sure, that's why we sing it. Well, I, I think we get we get lost before we get to that part. You never taught me that part. You said, Craig, your part is easy. All you have to do is keep singing. Brother John is gone. That's right. Who wrote Brother John, Ico Ico? Well, uh, I... I really don't know. I mean, the Neville brothers um, are are one version, but I think it was done by uh, the Wild Chapatulas, who was like an Indian uh, group Correct. down in there. And, and your and favorite I, covered it. You yeah. know who? The Boss. And the Boss? Did he do Brother John? Oh, my gosh. You've never Springsteen? heard Springsteen? Yes. Come on. Oh, yeah. No, I never did. Never heard it. See, you overthought your answer because it was Cyril Neville, the who drummer, who wrote this Good song. for him. All right, so now we need to sing. I need you to start. I know my part. And you want to start with that crazy beginning that I don't understand. Giacomo Finande. Giacomo Finande. You don't like what the big chief says. I said Giacomo Finande. One more time. Giacomo Finande. Giacomo Finande. You don't like what the big chief said. I said, Giacomo Finande. I said, brother. 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 Brother John is gone. I said, brother. 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 Brother John is gone. Well, I remember that morning. I remember it well. Brother Brother John John is gone. gone. Yeah, I remember that morning when the brother John fell. Brother John is gone. Well, they say that he died on the battlefield. Brother John is gone. The rest of his gang, they don't bow, they don't kneel. Oh, brother John is gone. I said, brother. 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 Brother John is gone. Brother John is gone. I said, brother. 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 Brother John is gone. Brother John is gone. Now, this... People out there, I just want you to know, when they hear Craig and I walking down the street, they 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 give us wide berth. <laughs> they think we're in pain. And let the record reflect that Skylar and Ico are right here in the studio for this epic recording next week. I know you have about 30 songs you're holding out on me. Could you stop being so busy and tell everybody where they can see you perform? Well, this weekend, Saturday, tomorrow, we're doing the, um, it's a benefit for the Colorado Blues Society at a, a venue called The Warehouse in Boulder. 
Um, and then a, the Saturday um, beyond, so a week from Saturday, we're playing at a place called Rockabilly's in Denver. Well, Shabbat Shalom to you, my friend. And do I have a treat for you? You know what it is, or did you forget already? I don't know. I may have forgotten. Bruce Springsteen singing Brother John, Ico Ico. Let's hear that. All right, we will. Thanks, everybody, for putting up with us. Have a great weekend. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Well, there you have it. And I hope I was nice enough. Dr. Murthy, I'm going to send you a copy. I'd love for you to be a guest because you have the welfare of America in mind. I have the welfare of America as well. And more locally, Colorado, the front range. And I need to call this out. Thank you for listening. We've had a heck of a show. Thank you, Troubadour. And thank you to my special guest, Peter Groff. He's terrific. Talk about the kind of leader you need, a trusted source of information. Former State Senator Peter Groff. Thank you for listening. And tell a friend. And I want to tell you to subscribe and give a five-star review. See you next Saturday. Until then, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.